Wow, what a week we had last week. I ask our leaders to join me in the conference room to watch the inauguration of President Trump on the big screen there, and it was very inspiring. As you know, it's a tremendous occasion. When you could see it on the big screen with all the stuff in the background, it certainly was a wonderful, uh, historical, pompous occasion. Of course, President Trump lashed out at his critics and everybody else in the world almost, gave one of the most strong speeches that anyone has ever given at a time like that, and he certainly made a lot of people mad. He set forth his objectives, though. He wants to clean up the government. He wants to make things fine, and that's good. He will not be the Messiah, but I guess he's going to try the best he can. So we ought to pray for him. As has been stated before, God tells us to pray for our leaders, and we're commanded by God to do that. Let's turn, if you would. Most of you know the scripture, but we certainly should take heed to it. Back in First Timothy Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 1 in your New Testament. Here the Apostle Paul was inspired by God to tell us, Therefore he said, I exhort you, 1 Timothy chapter 2, I mean verse 1, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life and godliness and reverence. Notice it doesn't say we're to pray that they'll be a great person or make us a big success. We are to pray that they will keep peace and order and help us to worship God. And I do believe God has guided this election in that way because the other person was wanting to bring in more and more of this transvestite, transgender, everything else type of movement and force it down people's throats. And that would have hurt. He's very against religion. For Trump is not against religion to the same degree at all. As you know, he has a, a practicing Orthodox Jewish son-in-law. His daughter's converted to Orthodox Judaism. His vice president, Pence, is a very fine, balanced, evangelical Christian from Indiana, governor of Indiana, who is against abortion and a lot of the wild stuff the liberal left is trying to push. And he also has Dr. Carson, the Seventh-day Adventist, who's going to be one of his cabinet members, many other fine people. So he has surrounded himself with a good team, and we can certainly pray that God will use him as long as it's God's will and help him bring peace to our nation and help us and the other servants of the living God to get God's message out to reach this sick world. It may give us a few more years to do that. We can ask God's guidance in that, and I'm sure God will hear us, our prayers in that way. But certainly we want to know that God is needed and his real kingdom is going to come. And brethren, I think all of us know, if we saw that tremendous outpouring of patriotism yesterday and all the pomp and ceremony and the flags and the pledge of the allegiance and the Marine band playing, patriotic themes and all that, there is going to be a far more awesome inauguration a few years from now, far more than this as we saw the other day. And I think we know that that's the one we've got to focus on. That's the one we've got to really look forward to. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 11, and now if you would, Revelation chapter 11. And here we find it talks in verse uh, 13, 
about the final big events as God shakes the nations. In that same hour, a great earthquake came, and the tenth of the city fell, and the seven thousand men were killed. The second woe was passed. Behold, the third woe is coming. The third woe, which is the seventh trump. The seventh trump just before and leading right into Christ's coming. Then, verse 15, the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world, and that includes the United States and Canada and Britain and Germany and, and Japan and Russia and China, includes all of them. No one's going to escape. He's going to rule this world. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There may be some demonstrations against him at the beginning, frankly, just like there have been against President Trump. And you know how that's been happening. And, of course, we know that when Christ comes, there's going to be a whole army fight against him when he comes. Tells us that back in Revelation 17, 14. It's going to be awful. And he's going to have to crush them. He's going to come with tremendous power. But it is going to be an awesome event when he comes down with the angelic horde surrounding him and thunder and lightning and power and trumpets going dun, 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 over and it's going to be tremendous. And some of us may sense ourselves rising in the air to meet him when he comes. It will be an awesome occasion. And we really need to look forward to that and prepare for that, brethren, with all of our heart. And many of us are getting older. It's going to be very close for many of us. So we need to focus on it as a reality. And I hope you younger people can too because it may come quicker than a lot of people think. It may even happen in spite of President Trump. He may speed things up. He may cause things to be better for a while and yet he may cause World War III to come sooner because of the way he does. We don't know. It's in God's hands. But it's going to be a very exciting time the next few years. But brethren, this whole concept of God's government is absolutely vital. Christ's government is going to come to this world. It's going to be a real governmental system based on laws, based on statutes and judgments, and we need to fill ourselves and saturate ourselves with those laws and statutes and judgments and the way God thinks. You know it tells you in Matthew 4, verse 4, and Luke 4, verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Every word of this book, you can't live by it unless you read it, unless you study it. And if you study it, you begin to study the laws and the statutes and the judgments given by God. Because this book, as I've told you before many times, this book is the mind of God in print. It's the way God thinks, the way God acts, the way God is. So I hope we can really realize that and come to realize more than ever how real this coming government is going to be. So I hope we can understand how important the right government is to God. It's not just some little difference between us and some of the other Church of God groups. It is the big difference. It's the very foundation of everything. As Mr. Herbert Armstrong said, government is everything. And that's true. It is the most important thing. What do we preach? What are you praying for? What are you paying your tithes and offering for? The preaching of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God 
the government of God is all about government when you understand if you don't have right government, you don't have anything. So we've got to really think about that. Let not let that be a bad word. That's a good word. As you know, the people in Britain are upset fighting each other just as Americans are fighting each other over here. And hundreds of thousands of women across the United States are having marches against President Trump right now. And across the world, they're rousing these things. And British are upset against each other because of Brexit. The French are, re are talking about exiting the European Union. The Italians are about to go broke. People in China and the outback are upset because they're not getting their fare of the economic pie. And all across the world, people are overthrowing governments. And many government officials are having to resign in various countries in South America and elsewhere because they're corrupt. Government across the whole world has become corrupt. God is going to straighten that out. It all comes back to government. So we have to really get real about the government, the coming literal government of Christ and our part in it. God is wanting us to get ready to focus on that because it is absolutely vital. When God decided to have a human government on this earth, he gave us the basis, the guidelines. And so I'm going to go through some of this pretty quickly so I have some time to give you the rest of my message. But I, I've reviewed this before, but I want to give you, just turn with me quickly, or you, some of you know these scriptures. But back in Exodus 18 is when God first began to set forth his form of government. And brethren, I think you know that 1 Corinthians 10, chapter 4, says that rock that went before ancient Israel, that rock was Christ. Jesus Christ, the person who became Christ, was the God of Israel. He was the one who spoke with Adam in the Garden of Eden. He's the one who spoke with Abraham. He's the one who spoke with Moses. He's the one who wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger. It was not God the Father. It was the one who became Christ. It's Christ's commandments, Christ's government. And here's what he told them to do back here, if you turn with me then at this point to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18, they were coming out of Israel, coming out of Egypt, I mean, and on the way he began to speak to them and tell them what to do. And of course, as he began to have his government through Moses, his chosen servant, it says in verse 13, one day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning till evening. And Moses' father-in-law was a very dedicated man, it indicates here and elsewhere, and gave him very good advice. And he said, what's going on? And he says, when the people have a difficulty, verse 16, they come to me, and I judge between one another, and I make them know the statutes. Moses taught them the statutes of God. What are statutes? Before I go a lot further in the sermon, most of you know that. They're the written basic civil laws. And they were the basic civil laws of the land at that time, and certainly they set forth the mind of God, those spiritual principles that are based on the Ten Commandments. We don't keep the letter of all that. I could give a whole sermon on that, which I have before too. But we're to keep the spirit of those. And many of them, we do keep the letter that shows how God would deal with the carnal people in the situations and which are extant at that time. So Moses taught them God's laws and he sat from morning to evening judging between the people. So Moses' father-in-law told him in verse 17, the thing you do is not good, you'll wear yourselves out. 
he says, you teach them the statutes and the judgments in verse 20 and the way they should go, but you shall select. And that can be a point. They did not have any committees. They didn't have anyone pushing him to do it. They didn't vote. You select, you appoint men, capable men, such as fear God, men of truth. Here are the conditions, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And everything indicates from the commentaries, from the history of the time, this was families. These were men with their families. So if you had a ruler of ten, that might have been a ruler of 30 to 50, including their wives and all their children, because many of them had big families back there. So anyway, you had each man ruling over a number of other people, and God guided Moses in this, and he did it. That was the beginning. God himself set that forth. That was the very beginning of the organized government of God, the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ. His form of government was started right then, government from the top down. And then we find in chapter 19 that God shook the nations and shook the world, I mean, and began to show how great he was with thunders and lightnings and so on and spoke to the people the Ten Commandments. And you know those. So he told them what they should do and they should obey those Ten Commandments. That was the way of God. Then in chapters 21, 22, and 23, he expounded on those and gave them judgments and statutes. Read those chapters. Read those chapters. You get there more of the mind of God and the statutes and judgments based on the Ten Commandments. And certainly, uh, they are, were very important to ancient Israel. But brethren, you know the history of Israel. Time after time, they turned aside. God was not real to them even though he was pouring out tremendous miracles. They could not trust the invisible God. And we have people today professing themselves to be at least in the church and spiritual Israel and they cannot trust the invisible God to run his church. We in the living church of God have got to learn better. We've got to learn that there is a real God and that he does guide his church. God wants us to learn that lesson, to put faith in the invisible God and in Jesus Christ as the acting living head of the church. That's, that's a vital lesson and part of all of that. And we've got to really understand that aspect of it. So they began to turn aside. They wanted to be more modern. They wanted to go along and be like the other nations of the world, just like people in God's church. Well, why can't we vote? Why can't we have a committee for this and a committee for that? And if the committee decides something, then the church has to go along with it. Whatever. Is that God's way? No, it has never, never, ever. You can't find one single solitary example in the Bible. Some of these other groups have tried to find one, but they can't do it because it's not there. It's not there. Back in 1 Samuel 8, it shows the aspect and the attitude of ancient Israel. After a while, they got upset at one of the greatest men of God in history. Samuel was running God's government at that time, and he was getting old. And they turned aside from him, not just because he was getting old, but because he was letting his sons run things, and his sons were turning away into paganism, into wrong ways. 
So Samuel was old. 1 Samuel 8 has made his son judges over Israel. I have not made my son judges over Israel. You all know that. My son Jim is not even on the council of elders. He's not on the board. And he's the only one who is just an elder, a local elder, and I'm very grateful he is. He's down preaching in South Carolina even now. But he, he made his sons. His sons did not walk in his ways. Verse 3, they turned aside and took dishonest gains and bribes and perverted justice. So the elders of Israel got together. They had a march on Washington like these women are, like other groups are. Is that what God wants? No, God does not want that. He doesn't want any march on Washington. He doesn't want any march on Charlotte. God wants people to learn to trust God. And if people turn completely away, then you've got to leave the church if it's not the church. As I've said again and again, you need to find God's true church. God's true church, number one, is the church that is more fully preaching the true gospel, the message of this book. Not perfectly, no one does it perfectly, but more fully preaching it. Number two is the church is doing the work more fully, and we certainly are. We're putting more of our budget into doing the work of God, and our television station and our other things are far more powerful than any other work on earth, as most of you know. Even though we're not quite as big as the leading group, we're doing a bigger work. No, Everyone can figure that out that looks into it. Thirdly, the true church of God should have the correct government of God. That's a tremendous thing in God's sight. And we're the only one that has it. There are a couple of groups that are split off from worldwide, and they have dictators. Both of them are my former students, unfortunately. I was not their only teacher, of course. Dr. Hay and others taught them as well. But these former kids in college decided that they would become apostles, and so both of them are way ahead of me now. They suddenly decided to appoint themselves an apostle. God did not appoint the apostle. You look at Second Corinthians, and you find the fruits of an apostle. They do not perform great miracles at all. That's wrong. They are very harsh, very mean. They'll kick people out for almost anything. We are not like that. The other extreme we find is the modernist stream that they want to vote. They want to have all kinds of committees to decide this and that. And they want to have politics. And God does not want either extreme. We are not either extreme. We are not either extreme in this church. You know that. Some of you newer brethren out there that don't know me might think, well, I'm preaching this for my good because I'm the presiding evangelist. No, I'm not. I tell you before God. I probably won't be here more than another six to 18 months. I'm not trying to get your sympathy, but I can't see as well. I can't hear as well. My energy is going down. God has given me a signal that it's time to bring in Mr. Weston and others and give them more to do. So I'm not planning this for my good. I'm planning this for your good. This is the Word of God that will help you get in God's kingdom forever. This is what the Bible very, very clearly says on one of the most important topics in the entire Bible. What is the gospel of the kingdom of God, the government of God? What is that government supposed to be like? What is it all about? Let's government that God is behind, where Christ is the living head of the government, and people have to have trust. These men did not have trust in that government, yet Samuel had done great things for them, 
delivered them in battle after battle, but now they turned aside from him. And they said, give us a king to rule us. But in verse 6, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king. So Samuel prayed to God. He didn't get all mad. He went and asked God, what do you want? And the Eternal said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Adam and Eve rejected God's way at the very beginning. The two trees Mr. Armstrong used to talk about, that was the basic turning away from God. This is the second big turning point. The first nation that God had, who had God's government, turned aside from that government and they said, we can't trust you, God's servant, anymore. We can't trust that Christ will guide you anymore. We want a human government. We want a king with a big panoply of armies and ceremonies, and we want something we can look to and see an army marching out there and trust in that. They turned aside. God said, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. So he said, heed their voice, give them a king. And Samuel did that, of course. And then the, the whole nation began to have more wars. They had more troubles than they'd ever had before. And it was not God's way. It was not God's way, never has been, never will be. They turned aside from the real government of God. Then you find in, in Second, Second Chronicles 19, Turn to Second Chronicles 19. Here's a little later time when God intervened and a righteous king, Jehoshaphat, was a king, of course, in Judah. And it said back in verse 3 how his, the prophet said, you've made some mistakes, but good is found in you, and you have pre prepared your heart to seek God. So Jehoshaphat, this righteous king of Judah, began to seek God. So in verse 4, 2 Chronicles 19, verse 4, Jehoshaphat dwelt in Jerusalem, went out again to Beersheba, and he brought them back to the eternal God of their fathers. So he brought Israel back, who was beginning to slip away. Then he set judges. Didn't say they voted again. No voting. The king appointed or set judges throughout the land and said to the judges, Take heed what you're doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the ever-living one who is with you in the judgment. How much more will God be with God's true ministers today and God's true servants in God's government than he would be with those carnal kings in ancient Israel? Think about it. God will be with you in the judgment. Now, verse 7, Now, therefore, let the fear of the eternal be upon you and do it, for there is no iniquity with the eternal our God, no partiality, nor take of bribes. And God's true ministers won't do that. There's never been a big instance where that has happened, and nothing has ever happened like that on a consistent basis from the time I came into God's church 67 years ago. One or two ministers tried to get that direction and were kicked out. And that, because God's government does try to keep things clean, and we've always tried to do that. So God intervened there and guided that. Now you'll notice then after Samuel set these judges, you go to the New Testament and turn to, to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 in the New Testament. Here's Jesus Christ. Did he have various helpers, have a committee to decide what to do? It says in verse 12, Luke 6 verse 12, 
Now it came to pass in those days that Jesus went out to a mountain to pray and he continued all night. What was he praying about? He was undoubtedly saying, Father in heaven, please guide me. Give me wisdom. I'm in the human flesh now. Help me to make your decision. That's the way God works through human beings. He prayed all night. And when it was day, he called his disciples, and from them he chose. He didn't have people vote for them or get a committee to decide. He chose 12 whom he named apostles. That was the example of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, you go then to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14 at this point. Here you find how they'd been run out of Lystra, where Paul had been left outside the city for dead after being stoned. And they went right back through that city, strengthening the souls of the brethren. And so it said in verse 13, when they had, a, or verse 23, when they had appointed elders, this is Acts 14, verse 23, when they had appointed, again, it was a matter of appointing the apostles, Peter, I mean, Paul and Barnabas appointed apostles. When they had appointed elders in every city, and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord on whom they believed. So it was by appointment. Paul wasn't perfect. Barnabas wasn't perfect. But they were the servants of God, and God led them. But they was always by appointment. Then you turn to Titus, chapter 1, if you would. Turn with me now to the book of Titus in your New Testament here. The book of Titus. First and second Timothy, and then comes Titus. And it tells Titus, his true son in the Lord, he says, verse 6, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking on that great big Mediterranean island. And set in order, you see, and or appoint. The Greek, the English word is directly, really translated here. The Greek word is translated, appoint elders. So it was by appointment always. Appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. He didn't say, I have the permission of the board. He said, I commanded you to do this. Then he gives the conditions that they're to have. They're supposed to be dedicated men, men of truth, and they're to be uh, not having a dedicate they're to have a dedicated wife and faithful children a bishop must be above reproach not perfect but above reproach as the steward of god not self-willed not give quick tempered not given to wine no alcoholics in the ministry not violent not greedy of money but hospitable a lover of what is good sober-minded just holy self-controlled Notice verse 9, holding the fast, the faithful word, as he has been taught. We have ordained elders of the past who wanted to be special. They wanted to be impressive, so they come up with some new doctrine. That's one condition. Elders not try to introduce some new doctrine. Teach the truth as you have been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict he used to be a strong man with a good personality, a strong enough personality to convict those who had caused divisions in God's church. Those are conditions. God wanted those conditions to be there, but under those conditions, he would guide his servants, Paul and Barnabas and Timothy and Titus, 
to appoint, not vote for, not have an election, but appoint elders throughout the church of God. That was God's government. That was always the way God worked. Now, brethren, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians, here's a very, very familiar area, but we always need to turn back to this one because it's so important. Here is the Apostle Paul telling us in detail what we should do as part of the way the church of God is to be organized. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And... uh, Okay, 1 Corinthians, let's go to chapter 5, first of all. Here he says, there's sexual immorality appointed, um, uh, direct, that red named among you is not even named among the Gentiles, The one of you has his father's wife. This man had been living with his stepmother, apparently, in a wrong way. You're puffed up. He says, I indeed is absent body, but present in spirit. My attitude, my spirit is there, have already judged. Did Paul have the right to judge to make a decision? Yes. He did not have, he did say, I went to the board or we had a vote. He said, I have judged as though I were present concerning him who had done this deed. So in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ acting for him, when you're gathered together in my spirit, my will is there in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. God may smite him as he sometimes does people when they're kicked out. And it's good for them to teach them a lesson that the day spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He says in verse uh, 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven. So right there he's commanding us to exercise what? What we call church government. That's only part of it. Church government is to help build people to organize the church, to work together as a team, That's the theme we should try to stress, to work together as a team, to be part of each other, to build together the family of God. But nevertheless, when bad guys try to divide the church, the church has to act. And Paul commands them to purge out the old leaven. Therefore, I urge you to to do this, that you may truly be unleavened. And indeed, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, verse 8, the Feast of Unleavened Bread they were observing, not with old leaven, as with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he told them they're not to even keep company with someone who calls himself a brother, who's a fornicator or something really bad. That's church government. We need to learn to think like God. Keep God's house clean. Don't have divisive people among us. Don't have people among us who will bring God's wrath on the church like sinners would bring God's wrath on ancient Israel. Are you more righteous than God? You have to think about that. We think we're nice. but we'd better be nice God's way. We have got to be nice by keeping the church clean and right and pure and, and dedicated to God. So therefore, he says, God judges the outsiders but you put away from yourselves that wicked person. Then he goes on in chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? 
How dare you go down the street to some worldly court against your brother, Paul is saying. That's not God's way. Don't you realize that the saints will judge the world? And brethren, I know that's kind of unreal to a lot of you. think, how can I judge the world? Well, you're supposed to be learning God's government in the church now. And we'd better start teaching more of that. God's laws, God's statutes, how they're to work, how they're to function under the new covenant, the letter of the law. I mean, the spirit of the law, not always the letter, but certainly show God's mind. You're to learn to be a judge. The saints will judge the world. And if the world would be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that the saints will judge angels? We think that's just a pie in the sky, something that's not going to happen. No, we, you and I, some of us, if we make it into God's kingdom, and I hope all of you will, will literally be called upon, undoubtedly, to judge, to make a decision between some angels having a dispute about something, to judge the angelic hosts, because we will be full sons of God. We will have total impartiality, total knowledge. We've got to train how to use that at later on. We will judge angels. How much more things that pertain to this life? How much more should we be learning to make righteous judgments here and now in the church? If then you have judgments concerning things that concerning this life, why do you appoint those who are least disturbed by the church? Why would you go to outsiders who don't even know about God, who don't even know God's laws? And often the translators put why in there. That's what's indicated here. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? You're supposed to develop that kind of wisdom. But brother goes to law with against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be defrauded? God is very strong on that. He doesn't want you to dare go down the street and fight one another in a worldly court or fight God's church in a worldly court. He will deal with people who do that, brethren. You will see. So we need to understand that, and that's a very important thing to Almighty God. Now, some of you might wonder, what about the organization? How, how, why don't we have, you know, a work for Australia and a work for Europe that's different and separately judged and organized to where they can work separately. We have regional directors over Australasia, Mr. Rob Tyler, and, of course, we have a very fine regional director, Adam uh, West, in, in Europe, and Mr. West's place at this time, Britain, Europe, and the Middle East, Adam West. We have different regional directors. Mr. Mr. Hernandez is over the Spanish work and so on. But they don't have total power. Why don't we give them total power of and by themselves? It's a different way of looking at it when you understand it from God's point of view. I want to explain a little bit of this. And we're certainly supposed to have the mind of God in it. And I'm, I'm sure that we do based upon how God guided his servant, Mr. Armstrong, now he's guided the church today. Turn with me to Galatians, Galatians chapter 2 now. The book of Galatians chapter 2. He talks about how he'd been set apart by God himself, not by man. 
and ordained by God. And he says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, chapter 2, verse 1, and took Barnabas. He went up by revelation. God had him go up to the headquarters church to be sure that things were okay. Yet even Titus, who was not with thee, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So even Titus was not made to be circumcised. They wanted to, but God guided it where they did not. But this occurred, this this challenge, because of the brethren secretly brought in, false brethren who were brought in to spy on our liberty, which we have in Christ. He says, but those who seemed to be something, and Paul was not overly impressed with them. I don't think he meant to be disrespectful, but he knew that the Jewish brethren tended to look up to the Jewish apostles way too much. They thought he was a Johnny come lately. How could he know anything? Now, Mr. Weston, the one who started the church of this age, is Mr. Herbert Armstrong. And he certainly had more capacity and did a bigger work than me or Mr. Weston or probably any of us. We look to him and honor him. We do not worship him, though. If we find something God says that we can improve on, we do that. And then some may think, I've been around in the work for 24 years. What could Mr. Weston know? Well, he knows a lot because he'd been in the church of God about 51 years and been very faithful and dedicated and Christ has led me to appoint him. Government is by appointment today. As you know, in God's church, the New Testament is filled with this as the next human leader. But they thought Paul is kind of a Johnny-come-lately. And he says he, he, he went to these leaders who seemed to be something. It makes no difference to me. But on the contrary, verse 7, Galatians chapter 2, verse 7, when they saw that the gospel of the circumcised had been committed uncircumcised, I'm sorry, had been committed to me as the gospel was, the circumcised was to Peter. They'd seen by the fruits that God used Peter to reach the Jews. God gave Peter the, the one guided to give the first sermon on the day of Pentecost, perform the first healings, do some of the biggest works at the very beginning, where Acts chapter 5, even Peter's shadow passed over people and they were healed. He made it very clear and throughout the New Testament, I don't have time for this, but you'll often find it listed, Peter, James, and John. Go back and look it up. It's in that order. Peter, James, and John, over and over, showing Peter was first, then James, the original apostle. Christ's brother was next. No, 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 not Christ's brother, the original James, and then the apostle John. Then that original apostle died, and then Jesus' physical brother James was converted and came along later. And so it was obvious to them that Peter was used by God for the circumcised. He said, Paul has used, God has used me for the uncircumcised as the gospel for the circumcised was given to Peter. For he worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. He said, the fruits show that. Who appointed Mr. Armstrong an apostle? Think about it. There's a word apostle listed on one of his ordination certificates, not on all of them, but they didn't even understand what that meant. They just meant apostle means one sent going forth, so they ordained a lot of their elders and called them apostles. Mr. Armstrong was announced as an apostle by Dr. Herman Hay 
at the Feast of Tabernacles at Sigler Springs, Oregon in 1952. I was there. Mr. Hay got up. He was not Dr. Hay yet. He said, some of you have thought that Mr. Armstrong was a prophet. He said, Herbert Armstrong is not a prophet. And I always remember Mr. Armstrong was very vigorous in, you know, protecting his office, which he should have been. He had a lot of people try to overthrow him. I saw him straighten up like, uh-oh, he's going to go up and throw Dr. Hay off the stage. But no, he waited a minute. He said, Herbert Armstrong is not a prophet. He is an apostle. And then Dr. Hay carefully explained, he was sort of the guru of the church in those years, how God had used this man to raise up that whole era of the church, how he got together and the church began to have an impact it had not had for hundreds of years, and how Mr. Armstrong had ordained and taught a whole cadre of ministers and had many healings, which he did have, brethren. I was there, I heard about it over and over, saw some of it personally. Wonderful healings. He proclaimed Mr. Armstrong an apostle because of the fruits. Mr. Armstrong was not vain in that way. He got up and he said afterward, he says, well, brethren, he says, I listened to Dr. Hay. I was wondering what he's going to say. He says, I'm not sure I am an apostle. But he said, maybe what he said makes sense. Let's think about it. Let's not go off and start calling me an apostle. He did think about it. He realized the fruits were there. So it's not always some direct revelation from God by a miracle, but by the fruits. I'm not an apostle because God has used Mr. Armstrong to raise up this era of the church and simply continuing what Mr. Armstrong did. If God wants to make me an apostle before I die, that God will suddenly let me have great miracles, and you'll see those miracles will be obvious. I don't think he's going to do that. I'll be glad if he does, of course. I'm not, you know, trying to play Mr. Humble, but God has not chosen to do that yet, and I don't want to appoint myself an apostle. Mr. Armstrong tried to appoint me an apostle three or four times. I say this before God in Christ. I'm not lying. Two or three times he said, I want to make you and Ted both apostles. Well, I already began to hear about Ted's problem. I thought, no, that won't be good. That'll set up a bad thing. And later he said, I think I'd like you and Ted and Charles Hunting and make you an apostle. Then later he said, Charles Hunting and, and uh, Al Pertoon and, and Raymond McNair. And I realized it caused confusion. And I said, it's not wise, not wise. And Mr. Armstrong backed down. So could I have been an apostle? If I was a politician, maybe so but I don't think it was God's will at that time. I have the same bottle of oil that I could have as an apostle. I have the same chance to preach and lead the church. Don't be seeking for some big office, any of you. Don't just look. If God wants you in a big office, he will give you a big office. He will give you Christ is in charge. Christ is alive. And I've seen that now for 67 years. I've been baptized in God's church a little over 67 years and one month now. I've seen these things happen. Christ is alive. So he said when he saw that they saw the fruits that Christ was using Paul as an apostle, then they recognized that. And verse 9, when James, and you'll read carefully the New Testament, and you'll see that by the time Paul wrote this letter, the original James had his head cut off. So it's not talking about that original James. It's talking about James, the Lord's brother. Christ's own physical brother had now come in. was powerful. He had walked and talked with God in the flesh in a remarkable way. 
once he was fully converted, he became the leading apostle. But when James, Cephas, or Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, and they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles. In other words, as apostles to the Gentiles, and they to the, uncircum- to the, to the circumcised, they should then desire that we remember the poor, which Paul certainly said I wanted to do. So you see, it was James, Peter, and John. And as you look at the history of the New Testament, I don't have time to go through that in detail. I may do it later. But Peter, apparently, and the indication is after this point, you don't hear much from Peter. Peter was out traveling around from every indication from history, as Dr. Vanille and others explain. He was probably in northwestern Europe and the British Isles. And the Apostle Paul was off in Italy and, and all these other places, even over in Spain, preaching in the various areas where they were sent. The one who was there at headquarters to kind of hold together things and make the basic decisions was Christ's younger brother who had seen Christ hour after thousands of hours growing up with him, growing up with God in the flesh. Once deeply converted, had a powerful understanding James then, the early history shows us, became the apostle at Jerusalem. And they were able to work together. Peter couldn't send in a report or email telling his details of his travel. Paul couldn't do that either. It took weeks for letters to get there. The Roman system didn't always work. So they had these men over their areas, and they had total authority in those areas, just as they had always had. But, Peter, but James was at Jerusalem. Why don't we have, you know, maybe Adam Smith totally over written in Europe, not reporting to us? Because we have immediate access. And he's still a younger man, a newer man. And Rob Tyler is a younger man, a newer man in his office. It's better and wiser that we have everyone report to headquarters. And so I've been used by Christ in this work, in the work as a whole, for over 64 and a half years full time. And I've been used in this work under Christ for 24 years, over 24 and a half years, uh, building this work. And so they can come to us. And now as Mr. Weston does more and more, they'll go to Mr. Weston or Mr. Weston and me. And what do we do if they're a major decision? As all our leaders can tell you, we have a meeting. We don't vote, but we have a meeting. And we get multitude of counsel. Read Proverbs 11 chapter 14 in the multitude of counsel there is wisdom multitude of counsel and when I made the decision to move the work here from Charlotte I talked to literally dozens of people including Mrs. Pyle Mrs. Aparty and my wife other women and I talked to certainly many of the leading ministers I had multitude of counsel I had the decision we didn't have a vote we didn't have politics we did get multitude of counsel And God guides it that way. So we have one team at headquarters that can make worldwide decisions that are immediately disseminated by email within a matter of minutes or hours at the most today. It's better. It helps us do a worldwide work in a far more effective way. And the fruits show that it works the best. And that's what God led Mr. Armstrong to do. And that's what God is leading us to do. So we have to understand it from that point of view. 
And so that's why we have a unified work today because we have it all back through headquarters. Now turn to Ephesians 1. Think about it. Ephesians chapter 1, as I've explained, is a tremendously important scripture. And I hope all of us can grasp this. Here is where people fall down. Ancient Israel was not willing to trust Christ to run them. They said, Samuel, we don't trust you anymore. We're going to decide what we want. And it was not God's way. And Samuel sought that. But he said, tell the people the troubles they're going to get into if they do this. Let them do it. Let them burn their fingers. And from then on, they did burn their fingers. And whenever they turned aside from God's government, things got worse and worse and worse until Israel rebelled against Judah and they split. And finally, both nations were taken into slavery national captivity and at the end it's going to happen all over again because we've turned away from God but the key is they did not put their faith and trust in the invisible Christ Christ was the God of Israel it tells us back here in Revelation chapter 1 that God has raised up Christ with mighty power verse 20 Revelation 1 verse 20 which he worked in Christ when he raised him Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies far above all principality and power and might and dominion. While he has dominion and power and glory, so far much more than President Trump or the Pope at Rome or anyone else, there's no comparison. The glory of the entire universe, far above all those things, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he, God, put all things, you see, all things under Christ, and gave him, Christ, to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. And you turn back to first to Colossians chapter 1, and you'll see the same thing. Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the head, the living head, the active head. And brethren, if you can't understand that, if you can't get that straight, you won't make it into God's kingdom. I don't want to be too strong, but I mean it. You've got to learn that. Christ is alive. He is the living head of this work. He's going to guide his servants. You've got to trust in Christ. If you can't trust in Christ in that, you won't trust in Christ in other things. He's the living head of the church of God, and he's the one who makes the decisions. So it is his, he's the head over all things. He's the head over the finance department. He's the head over church administration. He's the head over the editorial He's the head over TV. He's the head over every aspect of the church. He is the living head. He works through human beings. But he is alive. He's not a dead head. The church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So when people turn aside from that clear pattern of government that God describes starting back in Exodus 18 and repeated over and over and over, they are not trusting in Christ they are showing clearly to God that they are not willing to let Christ run his government. They can't trust him anymore. They can't trust him anymore. And he's going to have to shake them to the roots of their being before they're going to be in God's kingdom. I don't mean to be mean, but that's the truth for them. We're not loving them by letting them think otherwise because it's not going to happen. Now our calling, think about our calling now, brethren, we're called to be kings and priests in God's kingdom. 
turn back to Revelation chapter 2. Most of you know these scriptures, but at least I want to read them again for anyone new and have this as a way of record. As I was preparing this sermon, trying to go over this whole big picture thing, it occurred to me, I'm thinking of several things I want to do before I die. I'd like to finish my autobiography and finish getting in the the uh, booklet on the, uh, the Protestant Reformation and key other key things. I think I should write a church government booklet. We had one before. It's kind of gone by the wayside. It was not perfect. With this thought in mind and all the preparation for this sermon, it probably is better for me to write it than anyone else. They'll know I didn't write it to make it good for me because I probably won't be here to enforce these things. Someone else will have to. It's the truth. The truth shall make you free. The truth will bless people, strengthen people, strengthen the church. So I may turn this into a, into a booklet. We'll see. But God says back here in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 26, He says, He who overcomes. You've got to be an overcomer. You can't just sit there. Go forward, grow, change. He overcomes and keeps my works until the end. To him will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron as the potter's vessel shall be broken in pieces as I also have received from my father. I'm going to rule that way too. But he tells us to rule strongly. Boy, when you see the riots there in Washington, D.C. and in New York starting even right now, and all across the country, someone's going to have, as this country gets more and more torn apart, as Europe gets more torn apart, as the other nations, someone from somewhere is going to have to come in and rule with a rod of iron. It's going to be Jesus Christ. But he will do it through us and with us if we yield to him. He'll show them where the power is. But many of them will begin to realize they are fighting God because he will back it up then with supernatural power. So if they're willing to understand, they can understand. They wouldn't understand that now. I know that. Now, chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5, he talks about the prayer of the saints, and the saints sing a new song. Revelation 5, verse 9, the song of the saints, inspired of God, obviously, you are worthy to take the scroll, open its seals, for you, Christ, were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests. Notice, some translations have it, a kingdom of priests. Moses was both. Moses was of the house of Levi, not Judah, but he was both like a king and a priest. He, he was the ultimate judge, but he was also the leader spiritually. A kingdom of priests to our God. And we shall reign where? Not up in heaven. We're not going to heaven to reign up there. We're going to be on this earth. And God says that over and over again. So that's our calling. We're going to have to learn how to rule Uruguay and Paraguay and Argentina. We're going to have to learn to rule Budapest there and Hungary and, and uh, Austria. And we're going to have to rule Germany and France, and, and Spain, and Britain. We're going to have to learn how to rule Britain and the United States and Canada and Australia, New Zealand, the Philippines, China, all the nations to rule them under Christ as a very real thing. Think about that. Think about that. Am I close enough to ask yourself this, to know God's will? 
have I been drinking into the mind of God on this so I could be a ruler in God's coming government? So you want to be prepared for that, to rule with Christ over the world. Because Christ tells us through his word back in Revelation, back in Ezekiel 37. Turn with me now, if you would, back to Ezekiel uh, chapter 37. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 37. And here it describes at the time of the end, he says, Surely I will take the children of Israel, that's the modern British and American peoples, from among the nations where they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. He'll bring us back to Israel, the land of Palestine again. And I will make them one nation. We're split up. Some of us hate the Jews in our nation. We'll be one nation, Jews, Judah, and Israel together again. I'll make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king all over, the, over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations, won't be divided anymore. They're not going to be defiling themselves with detestable things. He said, verse 24, who is that king? Christ is coming back as king of kings. Most of you know the answer. Who rules right under Christ over Israel? David. Who is better trained than any other human being for 40 solid years? David was. He was the one that God used. He was the one that taught people God's statutes and judgments. And he ruled Israel. And Israel was very blessed under King David. David, my servant, shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. And they shall walk in my judgments and observe my statutes. We've got to learn God's statutes. The way God's law works. The way it spells out what you should do in dealing with your neighbor and dealing with property, and dealing with various situations. Think about it. Go back and study those statutes. We've got to walk in the statutes of God. And they shall dwell in the land that I gave them. And he says, My servant David will be king, or their prince, forever. So King David will be king again over Israel. And that will, he will be ruling according to God's statutes. He knew God's statutes. Those are the very laws he had to administer for 40 solid years in Israel. He was trained to do that. We've got to do our part with Christ in us to learn those statutes and that way of life to assist King David, to assist others in that government of God. Turn back now to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, and most of you know this wonderful uh, psalm here. And... Uh, I don't know if I can find it real quick. Psalm 119, brethren, and let's begin at the very beginning. God inspired King David here. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the ever-living one. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. Do you see his, his way of life that he's taught? Who seek him with the whole heart. As I've told you again and again, learn to seek God. One of the great signs of anyone who's ever been used by God is that they have learned to seek God, to go after God profoundly. Seek God with your whole heart. They also, he says, 
They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. They have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Again, he talks about the statutes using that term. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of heart. When I learn your righteous judgments, I will keep your statutes. Here it is again. I will keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. The judgments were penalties imposed if they broke the statutes. The statutes were a spelling out, in a sense, in the letter of the law, the principles of how to love your neighbor, how to be a good citizen in detail. So if we want the mind of God to know how to do that, we've got to study, not just know about, but study those statutes to really prepare to be those kings and priests. Let me give you a little kind of window into that. We don't have remotely time. I'll need a whole sermon on this sometime, or maybe five or ten of them. But turn to Leviticus 19, if you would. Leviticus chapter 19 at this point. And... uh, Hope I can find my own markings here. Leviticus 19, brethren, and I, I want to just read you some of these statutes back here that gives you a little bit, if you're not familiar with the flavor of it, and I hope all of you will get very familiar and begin to study these things in detail. Leviticus 19, and let's begin in verse 15. He said here, Now I know that the eternal is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing they behaved... Wait a minute, I'm reading back in chapter 18. Oh... I'm back in Exodus, no wonder. You'll pardon me because I can't I can't see very well. I'm getting the whole wrong the whole wrong uh, even chapter here. This is Leviticus nineteen. He says at verse twenty six of verse eight, chapter eighteen, he says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and not commit any of these abominations. So he begins to talk about the statutes here. And he says in chapter 19, he says in verse 15, Leviticus 19, verse 15, you shall know no iniquity in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor. So you're not supposed to be for the poor. If the poor are wrong, we say if a man is poor and robs, let him off. Mother, his father abused him. Let no God had a standard, and people have got to learn to keep that standard. And it's better for them. You need to teach the whole nation that way, of course, first so they understand. But you shall not be partial to the poor in judgment, nor honor the person of the mighty. Don't let some rich guy off the hook either. Don't go either way. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer nor shall you take up a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the eternal. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you rebuke your neighbor. Go to him. Tell him the problem. Be honest with him. God commands you to do that. 
You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the ever-living one. Wow. Here it is, the golden rule, right back here in God's statutes. That's where they begin, right in God's statutes. Learn to love your neighbor as yourself. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. It's better to keep your livestock breeding with the same kind. It's better to marry someone like yourself, as God tells us over and over. It's better not to mix cloths of the wrong kinds against each other. God tells us that as a way of life. It's not something one's better than the other. It's just that hogs or, or cows are not to mix with each other, and they're to keep separate. Whoever lies carnally with a woman who is betrothed as a concubine and who has not been redeemed, there shall be scourging but not death. Here's a woman who is under the power of another man. Frankly, brethren, God was very strict on certain things, but back where, where he permitted people to be slaves, he permitted things like this, and he, God is not against sex or afraid of sex. He just wanted to be sure that it is ruled according to God's law and built within the family structure. So he's to bring a trespass offering. And then he says, and shows how you're to set aside your, your fruit, and in the fifth year you can finally eat it. And then he says, you're, do not eat anything with blood. A statute, don't eat blood. It's a certain thing that would hurt you if you eat it. We know that, not just something spiritual. He said, verse 27, you will not shave around the sides of your head, nor disfigure the edges of your beard. No, come on with these odd, weird hairdos like people have today. God says, don't do that. It makes you look like a monkey sometimes, not God. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh or nor tattoo marks on your body. Why? Because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Mr. Dixon commented on that. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't chop your hair up in some weird way. Don't put tattoos, marks on your body and burn those things into your skin. That disfigures the very temple of God. Do not prostitute your daughter. Your daughter. Keep my Sabbath, reverence my sanctuary. Verse 31, do not give regard to mediums. Don't consult a horoscope. We have millions of businessmen who discuss and, and go to horoscopes and, and seances. and this. Don't do that. They're demons. They're demons. God says, stay away and rise up before the gray head. Honor the older person. Don't mistreat him. Don't mistreat the stranger. But the stranger who dwells among you He'll be as one of you, and you shall love him as yourself. If a person is already here, and they're a Mexican or someone else immigrant, be good to them. If they break the civil law, the civil authorities will take care, but once they're here, be good to them. Love them as a human being. You shall not do any injustice in judgment. Therefore, verse 37, to summarize, you shall observe my statutes. These are civil laws of God based upon the spiritual principles of the Ten Commandments. They give us an idea of the mind of God. The mind of God. Read more of them. They're all through this whole section. If you'd like a little guideline here, I can give it, not from memory, I probably should, but I have it in my own inimitable scribble here at the beginning of my Bible. 
and uh, I can find it here in a minute where the basic statutes and judgments are. You can find the statutes of God listed primarily in Exodus chapter 20 to 24. Exodus chapter 20 to 24. Leviticus chapter 16 through 27. Leviticus chapter 16 through 27. Numbers chapters 18, 19, and 27 to 30, and 35 to 36. Deuteronomy, the most of the whole book of Deuteronomy, expounds these statutes. Deuteronomy chapter 12 through 28. Deuteronomy chapters 12 through 28. So you need to read all those books, but if you want to just concentrate on God's statutes, that's where they are. And it may be good to do that sometime because we're to teach those statutes. We're to be kings and priests. Our job is going to be very real. In a few years, things are going to speed up. You're going to see things suddenly go wrong in the world. The power of this work is going to very greatly increase. God, I'm sure, if we're close to him and cry out to him, will give us the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we can have an impact on this world way beyond what we've ever done. So we've got to prepare for that and prepare for the real kingdom of God that's to come and teach God's law as kings and priests. Jesus magnified the law back here in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. He said in verse 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. He didn't come to destroy that whole way of life. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. And the word fulfill means fill to the full. He expounded it. He explained it through the whole New Testament. He magnified the laws. It says back in Isaiah 42, 21. Christ came to magnify like a magnifying and put a magnifying glass on a snowflake. And you see all the tremendous intricacies and beauties in that snowflake or anything else. You see the intricacy and beauty of God's law. Christ magnified it. He showed how we're to keep it not just in the letter but in the spirit. He went on here later telling them you're not only not to kill, you're not to hate. You're not only not to commit adultery, you're not even to look on a woman to lust after her. Don't do those things. Don't even let the attitude of breaking God's law be in your mind. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no way pass to the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least now, I'm sure he was in for referring not just to the Ten Commandments, but to the statutes, to the other judgments based on God's law. They all knew what he was talking about. He wasn't talking to Methodists or Baptists here. He was talking to Jews. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments that teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of God. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of God. So let's be prepared to teach God's law, God's way of life, God's statutes and judgments as they are magnified by Christ and the apostles. It's a way of life, and we want to make it real and make it wonderful because that's what it is. That's the way of life we're going to be teaching, and we've all got to prepare to be kings and priests. It's so important, brethren, that we practice those in God's church today and that we practice God's government in the church today by appointment and seeing how Joe George can run parking and John can run seating and 
Jane can run the, the uh, let's say, the, the serving of the food, and each one gives various responsibilities. More important than that, I'm just using some little things like that to see. Together we learn to take responsibility. We learn to submit to one another. We've learned to trust Christ to guide the church. We learn to function as a team under Christ, knowing it's not perfect because we don't perfectly submit to Christ, but want to do it as a team. We want to do it in the fear of God. We want to do it because we believe. We really believe in the kingdom of God. We believe that Christ is real, that he is the king of that kingdom. We will submit to him as our leader. We're not going to pull back from that. We know he will guide the circumstances. We know he will choose his leaders. He will guide the leaders whether I'm here or not. And I trust God in that. And I hope you will too. And follow Christ. Certainly let's uh, turn now to Revelation chapter 11 once again. Revelation. Turn to Revelation 11 once again. And here we find this last trumpet, tremendous trumpet blast, such as has never reverberated through the heavens, shaking people as the noise of that da, 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 comes through to them over and over and they see great blinding light coming down from heaven and maybe in a sense feel or sense their body rising to meet Christ in the air. Their hair is going to stand on their head if they have any hair during that time when we're spirit beings. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be more awesome than any or inauguration of any president, pope, or anything else in human history. We're going to be part of it. And so Christ is going to come back as King of kings and Lord of lords, and he, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of the Lord of his Christ, and he shall rule forever and ever. And the 24 elders, these great powerful spirit beings who sat before God, uh, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Here's what these powerful beings say when Christ comes back. They didn't say, we're going to have a march on Washington. We're going to have a march on Jerusalem. They say, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry. They're not going to like it at first. They've been taught false ideas about God. And your wrath has come in the time of the day that they should be judged and you should reward your servants, the prophets and saints. Boy, is he going to reward us. We will be given a spirit body, a glorified body. We'll never get sick. We'll never get tired. We'll stand there with Christ and Peter and Paul and others and help rule this earth under their leadership, under their guidance, under the leadership of King David over Israel and under Abraham and others over the world as a whole depending on what our particular role is. But we'll know that that is very real. The time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. He's going to crush Satan and the rebellion that's going to be raised against him when he comes. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven. Notice this, brethren. And what does he talk about? Right back at the end of the Bible. Is all the Old Testament forgotten? All done away? Nothing important? No, the temple of God is open and the Ark of His Covenant. What was in the Ark of the Covenant? The two tablets of stone. The Ten Commandments. God's Law. God's Law. God's Law. The Ark of the Covenant was seen in the temple in this great vision. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and an earthquake. 
and great hail. Yes, God will get people's attention in that magnificent inauguration when Christ comes back and there's a whole different government. Boy, you talk about a different government when he comes back as King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And we have the chance to actually be there, to be there with him and assist him in glory and power and majesty and feel we finally made it and we're going to help straighten out the world, the sorrows, the people that are starving, the people that are hurting, the people in concentration camp, the people that are sick will be healed, the downtrodden will be lifted up, it'll be real. We will be part of it. It won't be the administration of Trump, it won't be the ministry of some pope, it will be the administration of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we will be assisting him in government and the government of the great God of the universe. Let's get ready for that. Let's prepare for our part in the government of God.